Good morning, everyone. We'll turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Start reading in verse 16. It's funny that we're talking about age and things like that. Uh, Luann's birthday made me think of a lot of things, just kind of how quick life goes and thinking of my own self just getting older and older and just some of the things you deal with when you, you start growing in age and whatnot. It's huge, you know? I mean, it's just like me and Sasha were sitting at a bench the other day at the mall, and we looked at Ray, and we said, we have a six-year-old. It's just insane. You know, we're just old. I'm like, we're old, you know? Things change. It really does. It really does change. You just don't, like, I don't personally really think about how what I dress anymore. You know, I kind of just put it on. I'm pretty sure coming up here, I'll probably get my first pair of Skechers or something like that. You know, just, you really just don't mind those things anymore. I enjoy drinking coffee and talking about politics. Um, I enjoy resting now. Sleep is good, right? Sleep is really good. Um, And just things like that, yeah. It makes me think of a funny uh, story. I was like, I think I was roughly 17 years old, and I went with Brother Fouch uh, to the Gun and Knife Show with Brad, his son. And we come up to the thing, and Brad goes forward, pays his money to get in, and then I come up to the thing, and I offer my money, and the guy goes, kid's getting free. And I, and I looked up at Brother Fouch. I'm like, do I be honest here? And he just shoved me right through, you know? It, it, I'm going to take advantage of it if i got to take advantage of it, you know what I'm saying? So it does come in handy every now and again, but I do got to keep this animal on my face just so people know I'm at least, you know, a little older. But Ecclesiastes chapter 3 this morning. <clears throat> We'll start reading in verse uh, 16. It says, And moreover, I saw under the sun the place of judgment, that wickedness was there, and the place of righteousness, that iniquity was there. I said in mine heart, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time there for every purpose and for every word. I said in mine heart concerning the estate of the sons of men, that God might manifest them, and that they might see that they themselves are beasts. For that which befalleth the sons of men befalleth beasts, Every one thing befalleth them, as the one dieth, so dieth the other. Yea, they have all one breath, so that a man hath no preeminence above a beast, for all is vanity. All go unto one place, all are of dust, and all turn to dust again. Who knoweth the spirit of man that goeth upward, and the spirit of a beast that goeth downward to the earth? Wherefore I perceive that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his own works, for that is his portion. For who shall bring him to see what shall be after him? Just thinking about this um, this passage and kind of thinking about some bigger questions of life, it makes me think about death. Blaise Pascal said, "All I know is that I must soon die, but what I understand the least of all is this very death which I cannot escape." You know, it is something in, in humanity that we're that we're most assured of, but yet we kind of think about the least. You know, in our very beings, it's something that opposes every facet of who we actually are as humans. You know, no one, no one really thinks about death in a positive way. No one wakes up every morning and goes, today might be the day. I do work in insurance, so sometimes I say that. But most people don't act like that, you know? Most people, I mean, self-preservation is something that we see in a positive view. And I think death is one of the biggest proofs that something is wrong in the world. Something, something is is opposing us as humans. Something's different. Something's not right. If I were to look at it from from an atheistic view, looking at death, it's so contrary to everything that I that I want to be as a human. You know, I can't imagine losing a loved one or losing a friend or just the very essence of who we are. We were created not to die. So death is so foreign to us. It's something that we really don't understand. It, it, it's the biggest 
opposition to our vanity as, as, as humans. You know, everybody's going to have to die one day. And we can only do so much. We only have one life to live. That's why David asked God, he said, make me, you know, to know how frail I am. Show me the measure of my days. David was like, we only get one shot at this thing. And it's very kind of scary when you think about it because we all live as if God's going to give us that full 90, but we really don't know. You know, my day could be today. My day could be tomorrow. It could all end right there. It's something that's so fleeting, something that's so kind of scary to think about to an extent. And like I said, it's the biggest opposition to man's vanity. I was listening to an author a few weeks back at a conference, and he said in regards to death, because if you look at creation in Genesis onward, man was living above 900 years, 800 years, 700 years. Why did it keep going down? God had to literally stop man through death from becoming as wicked as he could be. Can you imagine if Hitler never had the chance to die? Or if Alexander the Great never died? I mean, these people, there was nothing stopping their conquest. There was nothing stopping their evil other than death. Death is almost God's mercy to our wickedness. Because if we didn't die, the wickedness would never end, as we see in Genesis 6 with, with Noah. But we were made in the likeness and image of God. As we know, Adam and Eve were never supposed to die. It was something that was so contrary to, to how they were made because they were made in the image and likeness of God. And God doesn't die. He's eternal. That's why when we look at death, it's like, what is this thing? What is this thing, death? I don't understand it. It's so weird. It's so opposite to how we were created. But death is one of the many questions that we as humans ask. It's just, a, it's just one of the few. We ask all these kind of questions about meaning and morality, all these different kinds of things, because it's almost like we don't fit in this world. We don't have answers for certain things. And from a naturalistic view that the world is just meaningless, so we're just randomly here, it doesn't make sense that we're here then. How, can we, how do we as humans stop and we think about these things? Why do these things matter to us? C.S. Lewis said it the best. He goes, if the world didn't have a meaning, then we should have never found out that it had no meaning. We as human beings, why are we humans here? It doesn't make sense. From the Christian standpoint, it does. But from the naturalist, it really doesn't make sense. But how do we deal with these things? How do we, how do we deal with pain? How, we, how do we deal with suffering? Right? How do we deal with serial killers and, and murders and, and rape and all these negative things in life? How do we deal with people that just abandon their children and throw them in the streets or trash cans? How do we make sense of human depravity? There's no way to understand it. How do we deal with meaning? We only have one life to live. How do I, how do I take my short life and then determine that it's something meaningful, that it actually leaves a blueprint? How am I supposed to live my life? How am I supposed to choose the life that I'm supposed to have? How am I supposed to do relationships? How am I supposed to treat other people? And how am I supposed to expect other people to treat me? You realize some people, they're treated terribly, but they think it's normalcy. And so they accept it. Whereas other people grow up in good situations and they think different. How do we make sense of these things? How do we make sense of morality? I, th I think about prisons all the time. It's the weirdest thing that people don't think about this. We literally have to lock human beings in cages because they're, they're a threat to society. They can't control themselves. That corrections officer putting that human in that cage is just as much human in flesh as the person going in the cage. But people don't think about these things. We've said it before, but how come we take Bibles out of schools and don't give them to kids, but we give them to people going to war or that are in prison? It doesn't make any kind of sense. How do we make sense of our desires? James chapter 4 says we have wars, we have fightings, we have all these kind of things because there's these desires that war in our members. How do we control these things? From a lost person's perspective, there really is no answer. But those are, those are bad things. But what about good things? You think about people that go through pain and suffering, and at least in their pain and suffering, they have some kind of hope that it might get better. But what about the billionaire who has everything he wants but still can't find meaning and happiness to life? Uh, Rabbi Zacharias talks about there's a weariness of pain, but there's also a weariness of pleasure. Where does the rich man go when, when he has everything he, he can ever have, but there's still a huge hole in his heart? 
How do we make sense of these things? It really, it really doesn't make sense without God. And people try to numb the pain. Right? We try to do everything we can to numb the pain to make ourselves forget. We constantly have to entertain ourselves and, and, and create ourselves with the notion to feel good. We have to, to drink and to do drugs and to chase highs because we constantly have to distract ourselves from asking these questions because when we ask these questions, it gets kind of scary. And there's no other answer that I found personally in my life specifically for these things other than the person of Jesus Christ. And I mean that. I've looked, I've doubted God multiple times. I've searched and I've thought about these things and there really is no other answer than Jesus Christ. Not religion, not people's opinions, not, not, not people themselves, but God says the word became flesh and dwelt among us to give us the answer to these things. Um, if you notice, God didn't just send an answer, he sent a person. He sent a person, his name was Jesus Christ. And I believe that that's where we find Christ. If you think about Adam and Eve, they, they sinned. When they were in the garden with God, they had perfect union, they had perfect happiness, they had perfect everything with God. But when they sinned, they experienced certain things. They experienced suffering, they experienced pain, they experienced shame. They experienced labor, right? The man now has to eat by the sweat of his brow. The woman has to travail in childbirth. Those were all curses, things that they didn't experience beforehand, but things that they now have to experience. And if you think about it, when we go to these places and we ask ourselves these questions, Christ is the only answer to these things because it was because of sin that we even experienced these things. I love to, th to think of Adam, and we've talked. I was talking about this with Brother Klein the other day. When you think about Adam, he gave names to all of God's creation. God let him name every single animal. But then at, after he sinned and they tried to hide from God, they tried to cover themselves with leaves, right? we got to cover ourselves, so I'm going to grab leaves. I'm going to grab something that is not living, something that does not have a soul, and I'm going to try to cover myself with it. But God said that is not good enough. So if you can imagine, God brings this lamb out. We assume it was a lamb. This lamb out, he kills the lamb, and then he covers Adam's body with the skin. Now, this doesn't seem weird to us, but Adam's never seen death before. Adam has never seen anything like that, and he has to watch the lamb that he loves and he named die. God takes that skin and covers Adam's nakedness with it. And this is the essence of our humanity. Mankind naturally seeks a covering for his sin and for his shame through different things. But God said there's only one covering that can actually remove that from us, and that's, that's blood, without the shedding of blood. But if you think about it, people live their lives like they have a debt to pay. If I was not a Christian, I would be the worst human being you've ever met in your life. I probably still am the worst human being you've ever met in your life. Why do we care about other people? I see people give to charity, and they give to people that are on the streets that are homeless and this kind of thing. But if there's no God, then who cares? This is my life. This is the only one I got. I'm going to live it for my own pleasure, right? But mankind naturally feels like he has a debt to pay, like he needs to do religion, right? Like he needs to be a good person, but we don't know why. It's because that debt was instilled in man's consciousness in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve knew they had a debt to pay. We naturally know we have a debt to pay, but the problem is we don't have the funds. But God gives that to us through the work of Jesus Christ, right? Man messed it up. And what we do is the answer is in Christ, but mankind constantly loves to finagle it, right? I love the story about when Peter saw um, Elijah and Moses and Jesus. And what is the first thing he wanted to do? He wanted to make tabernacles. I got I to gotta make something, right? I got I to gotta do something to try to worship God. But it, the answer was Christ, right? It wasn't mankind's manipulation of these things. Romans chapter 1 tells us that mankind changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image like corruptible man. And that's what man wants to do. God is perfect and holy, but we want to bring God down to our level and we want to manipulate him so he doesn't convict us because that perfect holiness is what draws us away from him. You think about when Moses was getting the commandments on the mount. What were the people doing? They were worshiping a golden cow. 
a golden cow. That's the element of our humanity. We oppose God. And if you notice, when Christ came on earth, it wasn't the world that crucified him. It was the religious people. It was the Jews, right? Because they sought a covering that was different than Christ. They sought leaves. They didn't seek the blood of Jesus Christ. And religion still destroys Christ today. I love what Jesus said. He said to the Jews, he says, The people of Nineveh shall rise up in judgment against your generation. The people of Nineveh weren't Jews. They didn't know Christ. He said, the queen of the south is going to rise up in judgment against this generation. She was a Gentile woman who came to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and God said, a greater than Solomon is here, right? He said, if I would have done these works in Sodom and Gomorrah, it would have remained until this day. It's religion that kills Christ, not not even the essence of the world. Go to Romans chapter 10 here. Romans chapter 10, and we'll look down in verse 4. Romans chapter 10 and verse 4. Speaking specifically about the Jews... Verse 2, it said that they have a zeal for God, but it's not according to knowledge, for they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves into the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law to everyone that believeth. We're not saved by the law. We're saved by the work of Christ. Christ raised the standard. We could not complete it. When he came on earth, they, they said, well, we're not committing adultery externally. He goes, but are you lusting after a woman? Well, we're not committing idolatry. He goes, well, are, do you covet another man's property? They said, they said that they're not committing murder, but he goes, are you angry with your brother without cause, right? He took it inside. He raised the standard. He said, be therefore perfect, for I am perfect. We cannot attain to this righteousness. It's not by our works, lest any man should boast. Lost, lost people look at morality like it's some kind of competition. Well, you just have a better moral set of values than I do, but that's not the case, right? It, it, it's not my morality that saved me. It's what Christ did. My work could not save me. Our flesh had nothing to do with our salvation, right? I love when people say, I just had so much value. God just loved me. He saw the good in me. No, he saw the worthlessness in you. He saw the absolute hopelessness in you. We had no value. That's why he sent Christ. I was a wicked sinner that was lost. I had no power. I could do nothing, right? Christ is the propitiation. People think we had so much value in regards to our salvation, but our flesh had none. But here's the difference. And this is a good quote. This is what... um, Uh, William Lane Craig said, he said, knowledge of God without knowledge of man's wretchedness begets pride. Knowledge of man's wretchedness without the knowledge of God begets despair. But Christ unites the two simultaneously. Because through him we can obtain the salvation, but it's not by our pride, it's by his finished work on Calvary. Right? They hope, lost people hope by being good that they can please God or at least have a good standing with men. But the thing, the difference between Christians is, Christians don't think that God loves us because we are good, but that he'll make us good because he loves us. It's not us that's doing the work in us. It's Christ, right? But if our flesh had no value in salvation, then why do we think it has value after salvation? If, if, my, if my flesh and my works could not obtain right, my salvation, then after I get saved, why do I think that I can do it on my own or that God's pleased with the external, right? When I stand before God on judgment day, he's not going to go, well done, thy good and faithful servant. You wore a tie every Sunday, Every Sunday you wore a tie. No, it's not the external that pleases God. It's our hearts. It's our hearts. Go with me to Matthew chapter 23, verse 24. Matthew 23, verse 24. Jesus is talking to the religious again. He says, You blind guides which strain at a gnat and swallow a camel. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you make clean the outside of the cup and platter, but within they are full of extortion in excess, right? In verse 23, he says, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye pay tithe of mint and of mice and cumin and have omitted the weightier matters of the law. Judgment, 
mercy, and faith. These ought ye to have done and not to leave the other undone. We need to start looking at Christ in regards to our Christianity and not so much religion. We have churches fighting over how our buildings look. Or that church went liberal because they don't wear ties on the platform anymore. Or they sung a contemporary song. We're, we're straining over gnats, but the world is dying and going to hell. What are we doing about it? The world is looking for something real. They're, they're sick and tired of seeing this hypocrisy, this nonsense. God desires true spirituality. right? We reverence God by the way we dress in here. We reverence God by our activities. We reverence God with the hymns, but do we reverence God with the preparation of our hearts? The outside of the platter looks good, but how does the inside look in our approach to God? It's a very scary thing. Go to Galatians chapter 6, verse 10. Galatians chapter 6, verse 10. I, I like the terminology that Paul uses here. Galatians chapter 6, verse 10. He says, As we therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. You see how large a letter I have written unto you with mine own hand. As many as desire to make a fair shoe in the flesh, they constrain you to be circumcised, only lest they should suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. For neither they themselves who are circumcised keep the law, but ye desire to, have to be circumcised that they may glory in your flesh. But he said, but God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Right? It's all about the flesh in church now. It's all about the flesh. I'm not saying that standards and things don't matter. But you can still have all the standards and things and not know Christ. You can know the word of God, but not know the God of the word. You can be seeking it for the wrong reasons and to make a fair shoe in the flesh. And we need to get back to the point where we seek none other than the person of Jesus Christ. Everybody's got an opinion about God, but they don't read his actual biography that he wrote, right? You can't, if I wrote a biography about myself, you couldn't comment on it and say, no, that's not what he really meant, right? Right? He didn't really like mashed potatoes and gravy. He liked, you know, peas and carrots or something like that. No, like I know what I like. Christ knows who he is. We need to listen to his opinion of it, right? And the reason the church has gotten away from affecting the world is because we are no longer acting like Christ. The disciples flipped the world upside down because people took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. It's Jesus that has the, transport, the transformation power. The Bible says, if I be high and lifted up, I will draw them into myself. The reason why people aren't coming to church anymore is because we're, we're in the way. We're not showing to them Christ. It's all about us, all about us, all about us, right? If I be high and lifted up people always say that they leave the church because of like hypocrisy and too many denominations, too many interpretations. But the problem is, is you're looking at people, not Christ. Christ was not a hypocrite. Christ was the essence of divine humanity. Obviously, people are going to be bad. We're humans, right? We're sinners. We're wicked. I love one of the, you realize one of the main guys who helped start the New Testament church, his name was Peter, and he denied Christ three times and he couldn't walk on water without Jesus. But we expect Jesus' followers to walk on water. No, we're sinners, and we need Christ, right? And the, the, the whole idea is man is fallible, but if you look at Christ, he is not tangible. He is perfect, and we need to start focusing on Jesus. Take Jesus' word for it. Don't take mine. Look at what Christ actually said. Look at what Christ actually said. He was the essence of divine humanity. Go to John chapter 21. John chapter 21 in verse 25. We need to start focusing on Christ. John chapter 21, verse 25. It says, and there are also many other things which Jesus did, the which, if they should be written, everyone, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. Amen. Now, when I think of this, I think it's weird. Because I'm like, that means that Jesus did so many actions that if we recorded them, the world couldn't hold the books. That doesn't make sense. But think about it in this way. Look how many books have been written about Christ already. Millions. About the very short account, the three-year account of his life. We have millions of books. Imagine if we had a record of every single event that took place in Jesus' life. Because his actions were so profound. Everything he did was so contrary to how humans act. 
Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, the three men that laid the philosophical foundation for Western culture did not do as much as Christ did in three and a half years. He did more to change humanity in three and a half years than anything that man could have ever done. If you don't believe in Jesus from a Christian standpoint, take the, take the authority of Roman historians like Tacitus, Lucian, Josephus, Jewish historian, Suetonius, Pliny the Younger, Thallus, and the Jewish Talmud all record things of Christ's life from a secular point of view. From a secular point of view. H.G. Wells, in his outline of history, which is 1,200 pages, it's a volume going through the history of the world, devoted 41 pages to Jesus Christ. And he was a socialist and a Darwinist. If you look at the Encyclopedia Britannica, it has 21,000 words that are devoted to Jesus Christ. Now, this isn't even coming in regards to the Bible. So if people looking at Christ, he was a human. He came to disrupt history. He came to be like one of us. We try to rob Christ of his humanity. And he was a real actual person that actually lived on the earth. The only thing that is disputed is whether or not he was actually risen again on the third day. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and they beheld his glory as of the only begotten son. Right? What you got to understand is a lot of people say Christ was just a good moral teacher. The problem is that that doesn't work out. He would have been a lunatic. All right, either he was God or he was crazy, because he didn't just bring good teachings. He said, "I and my Father are one." He claimed to be the same with God. So either he was crazy or he or he was actually God. He said, "Take eat. This is my body. Right? Drink. This is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many." If if I went around telling people that, they'd think I was nuts. They'd lock me up in the loony bin with Brother Klein. Right? They'd think I was. I'm just joking. Think I was absolutely crazy. Right? But Christ made these statements. He didn't say, "My teachings are the way." He said, "I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me." Think about this. If if oh man, I don't want to cause any discord. If Ethan punched Thomas in the face, Thomas has the right to, to give forgiveness to Ethan. But what if I went to Thomas and, or if I went to Ethan and I said, I forgive you, Ethan, for punching Thomas in the face, but I had nothing in regards to it. You'd think I was nuts, but that's what Christ did. He forgave people for trespassing against other men as if he was the one that was actually offended. He wasn't just a great moral teacher. He had to be God or he had to be absolutely nuts. And this is why it's so hard. What I love about Christ is you have to take him as both God and man. You can't get away with just one of the two. Because people use the excuse, they say, well, I'm only human. That's why we did it, right? Freud says if you're a pedophile, it's just your natural instinct as a human being, right? You're just human, but Christ doesn't let us get away with that. Because he goes, this is what humanity is supposed to look like. And that's why we put him on a cross, because we don't like that form of humanity. We don't like the personal God. We like a God that we can just pay mass to on on Sunday. We can just go and acknowledge once a week, and then we can go on and do whatever we want. But God says, I want to have a relationship with you. I want to have a personal relationship with you. And that's why it's so hard, right? People don't want that kind of God. That's why we want him on a cross. Jesus' incarnation is absolutely the most insane thing that we could absolutely think about. Go to Philippians chapter 2, and I'll hurry it up here. Philippians chapter 2. I'm trying to talk slow for you guys. Three, three cups of coffee deep, right? Philippians chapter 2. Verse 5, he says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. Now think about this. When I try to imagine Jesus' incarnation, I try to think of something that I really wouldn't want to become, so like a slug, right? If I were to give up my humanity and become a slug and live a life of a slug, and all the slugs would kill me, right? That's what I try to think of it, right? Because Christ came down and embodied our flesh. He was God. He was omnipotent, omniscient, right? Omnipresent. And he came down in time and became one of us. He made himself of no reputation, 
right? People, we want to paint this picture like Jesus was just this popular dude that everybody liked. No, he was born in Nazareth, right? Jews, Jews were very geographically racist, if that's even a term. They, 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 they hated people from Galilee. They hated people from Nazareth, but that's where Jesus chose to be born, right? He chose a, a, a sickly, weak form of birth and took upon him the form of a servant. It was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto the death, even the death of the cross. He lived a terrible, he had a terrible birth in a, in a manger. And then he lived a, he was homeless for his whole life. What did he say? He said, the foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the son of man hath not where to lay his head. He was homeless. And then he died the worst death that you could do, which was crucifixion. The Romans wouldn't even crucify their own, their own citizens. It was such a wicked, vile thing. Right? So he lived this life specifically for us. Go really quick with me to Luke chapter 2. We're coming up on Christmas now. The snow is going to be coming here pretty soon. Oh, great. He talked about snow. Luke chapter 2. I love this story of Mary and Jesus' birth because it's amazing that God would do this. Luke chapter 2. All right, now think about this, though. Oh, we'll, we'll read it first. But um, it says, And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. And all went to be taxed, every one into his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, under the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was a ho- of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, still engaged, being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger, because there were no room for them in the end. Now think about this, though. In Judaistic culture, if you got pregnant out of wedlock, it was a punishable, punishable offense by death. It was seen as a shameful thing. So Mary gets pregnant of the Holy Ghost, right? She was a virgin born, so Christ wasn't a sinner, and she gets pregnant. Now, what would you have thought if you were her family, if you were her cousin? Your cousin tells you that she's pregnant, even though she's engaged, and, and it's by God. I mean, let's be honest. You'd probably think she was nuts. You hadn't heard any kind of revelation for 400 years, and this woman says she gets pregnant out of wedlock. Can you imagine the shame she must have gone through from family and friends, the neglect? That's how God chose to come into this world. Can you imagine the things she was going through? And then here, they're going to pay their taxes. This woman is nine months prego on a donkey, contracting, going, they can't find anywhere to stay. If you think this was silent, no. She was pregnant. She was probably hot. And she was like, Joseph, you did this to me. No, he did, she didn't say nothing like that. But like, you know, she's probably freaking out. And then they finally find an inn. And they're like, we have room in the barn. So she goes to the barn. And then she, she's, ha- she's in labor. This is a terrible thing. And then Jesus comes out. Little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. Of course he cried. He was a baby, right? He comes out and he's birthed in the, in, in the water, the umbilical cord, the placenta that comes out. This is how Christ came into this world. This is how much he loved you. He was God and he came through and was birthed of a woman in human flesh and fluids, right? Cut the umbilical cord and he was raised as a baby. That's how much he loved us. When I think about that, it's crazy, right? What we try to take away from Christ's humanity, right? We try to make it, it was such a divine, sacred night. It was like, no, it was real, right? It was real. I was looking at, we went and helped babysit a little, one of our Bible college student friends' babies. Uh, we babysitted them for Friday and Saturday. Sasha hated it, right? We watched him, and, and I'm just looking at this kid on the floor spitting up and messing himself, and I'm like, that's how Jesus was, right? That's who Christ was. And so it's just, it's just don't take away from how much he loved us. It was amazing. Now think about all people's perceptions. They also had perceptions about his physical looks, right? He was this long, beautiful man who had, you know, no, no imperfections. Go with me to Isaiah chapter 53. This is the only description physically we have of what Christ looked like. 
Isaiah chapter 53, verse 1, Who hath believed our report, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness. And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. He, he looked like a normal human being. There was nothing about his physical appearance that made people go, that's the Son of God. John the Baptist said he didn't even recognize Christ, aside from the fact that the Holy Spirit descended on him. He was a normal human being, right, who lived a normal human life for us. We don't have the time for it, but I'll end here with one last illustration here when we think about Christ's temptation. Go, go with me in closing to Matthew chapter 4 here. Matthew chapter 4. There's so much more, but for sake of time, we'll go to Matthew chapter 4. Christ's temptation. Now, what is the most important thing to you in life? A lot of people could say money, they could say fame, they could say success, but here's what the most important thing to you is, is relationships. Nobody's ordering pizza on their deathbed, right? No one's watching movies on their deathbed, right? They're with family enjoying the last moments of this life. Why? Because we're made in the image of God and relationships is what is important to us. God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, because God wanted to have a relationship with something who was like him. But the problem is, is that's the only opportunity that we have for free will and actual true love. God had to give us a choice, right? And there's a lot of people that say, well, since mankind failed, how can God leave the world in the state it is, right? How can God leave the world in such a wicked, mankind is doing wicked, obscene things to people. How can God just sit back and watch that? But here's the thing. You have to understand why God created us the way he did, right? Spider-Man said, with great power comes great responsibility, okay? Jesus said it first, but they stole that. We went over this illustration with the kids, the, mo the more power that God gives something to be good, the more possibility there is to be bad. Think about a cow. A cow can only be so bad, but it can only be so good, right? It chews the cud. It's pretty stupid, right? It sits in the, in the farm. It can leave and get hit by a car, but really it just does its thing. Let's go one step up. Let's go to a dog, right? Dogs, dogs can chew up your couch, right? Dogs can do a lot of bad. They can pee on your carpet. They can do a lot of bad, but they can also be a friend to you. They can show you affection. They can be a companion. So one step up. So they can be a little more bad, but they can be more good. Well, let's take an adolescent child. An adolescent child can do a lot of bad things, right? It can get into a lot of trouble, but it can also love you with the human cognitive ability that you can show it affection back. Let's go to a human. A human can help people, but it can also hurt people. It can do a lot of good, but a human can do a lot of bad as we've seen. Let's go one step further. Take a human genius. Human geniuses can create medicine, they can create opportunities, they can create wealth and jobs, but they can also create atomic bombs. The better that something is created, the more possibility it has to be bad. So God valued our free will enough to create us in his image and likeness. It's our choice of how we want to respond to that. That's why the world's in the state it is. Without, God could have cows, for goodness sakes, but he didn't because he wanted that relationship. In Christ's temptation, Satan comes to Jesus Christ. In verse 1, it says, Then was Jesus led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was afterward and hungered. And when the tempter came to him, he said, If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. Now, some people think that Satan didn't know it was actually Jesus. Some people actually think that, that, that he came to this man not knowing if he was an angelic being or not, because he says, If thou be the Son of God, act like I think God should act. So in the garden, the temptation was, can man really be like God? In this temptation, it was, can God really be man? But God could have used his power, he could have used his glory to please Satan, right, to exalt himself, to save himself through these temptations, but he showed the miracle of restraint. He held himself back. 
Because instead of manipulating our free will and showing himself as God, he actually gave us more free will and gave us the ability to choose because he wants a relationship with us. Jesus never wanted to exalt the miracles. What, I always, this always baffled me. When he did miracles to somebody, he, what, he, what would he say to them? He'd say, go and tell no one. Obviously, they didn't do that, but he wanted to hide that because he didn't want to manifest himself to the point where people would have to believe in him. He gives you a choice. After Jesus Christ was resurrected, he could have gone straight to Pilate and been like, what's up, dude? I'm alive, right? Did he do that? No. He showed himself to his close friends and hid himself and then left the Mount of Olives in the ascension, right? And the disciples were like, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? No. Why did he do these things? He hides himself because he says, blessed are they who believe and have not seen. God wants you to believe in him through faith. He could manifest himself and come down and be God, but he wanted to give mankind a choice. Mankind failed in the Garden of Eden, right? Mankind chose wrong, and I'll leave you with this illustration right here. Oh my goodness, there's so much more, guys. Um, so what happened was is this. Adam failed in the Garden, and because of his failure, sin passed on to everybody. God says, as by the righteousness of one, many became righteous. People who think that the righteousness just to heaven. God says there was one man that was righteous in salvation, and that was Christ. He was the only man. If you notice what he says, God says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. If you beget something, it's something that came out of you. It's something that is like you, right? Adam was a creation. Adam was not a begotten son of God. Adam fell, and so humanity fell. God's creation fell. So God sent his only begotten son in the likeness of sinful flesh. See, it, it, takes, it takes a good man, and I'll read this to you, repentance, right? When we come to God, fallen man is not merely an imperfect creature who needs improvement, but a rebel who must lay down his arms. Repentance is more than just feeling sorry. It's an unlearning of all the self-conceit and self-will that we have been training ourselves with for the past thousands of years. It means killing a part of ourselves. It means a kind of death. It takes a good man to repent. Only a bad person needs to repent. Only a good person can repent. The only person who could do it would be a perfect person, and he wouldn't need to do it. Does that make any sense? Right? So what, what man had to do to come back to Christ is he had to repent of all his prideful conceit and of all his sin and come to Christ. But mankind's too bad to repent in a good way. Christ was the only human who could actually repent back to, Christ, back to God in the right kind of way. He had to do something that in his deity, right? He doesn't suffer in his deity. He doesn't, he doesn't um, apologize in his deity. He doesn't die in his deity. But he became man and did that so that we could become more, we could become more than a creation. It says, and as many as received them to him, to them gave power to become the sons of God. So that we, as Christ was a begotten son of God, he's also in Revelations 1.5, it says that Jesus was the first begotten from the dead. We can be begotten sons of God through what Christ did on Calvary because we couldn't even repent right. So it's not our righteousness that saves us. I love how Jesus Christ ended it. The last thing that Jesus Christ did on earth while he was hanging on a cross, one thief looked at Christ and he said, if you're the Messiah, save yourself and save us. But the other thief on the other side looked at Christ and saw the most beautiful part of what Christ was doing. Right? He, he, others he had to save, but he himself he could not save. And he said, Lord, let me be with you in paradise today. The last thing that Christ did was save a hopeless sinner. The question is, what side of the cross are you on? Uh, dear Jesus, just thank you for today. Thank you for everything that you've done. Uh, thank you for this group of people that came and listened to you, Lord. I thank you for what you've done. We can't glory in anything in ourselves because it's not us. 
Uh, but we do praise you, Lord, for uh, just giving us the opportunity to know you, that you came in the flesh, you were born of a woman, you lived a human life, Lord, so that we could know you. We just do praise you for that. And we pray that you would just uh, help us to be more like you, Lord God, and focus on Jesus. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.